welcome back to the podcast. I'm Kate. And I'm Anna. And this week I spoke with Anne Pitts-Cleon and I haven't necessarily pronounced that right, but Anne does speak about it in the podcast, a little bit about the origin of her last name and kind of what that means to her, which, which I quite liked because I did try, but she can, she can explain it a lot better than me. Um, but Anne is currently on, this, on the payment systems regulator panel and she represents consumer interests. So a lot of what she's working on is uh, representing the consumer side in terms of payments and how payments are meeting customer needs. And Anne has also led strategy and product development at BAX, which is now pay.uk. And she's also passionate about financial inclusion and diversity efforts and also challenging traditional payment models. So things that we spoke about were um, a lot of Anne's career milestones because she's had quite quite a diverse career working in banking, payments, doing charity work and leading consumer advocacy efforts. So we spoke a lot about her career journey from you know, her first role in a high street bank and kind of where she went from there, which, which was really, I think, quite, it was fun to talk about just that journey that she's gone on and some of her reflections throughout that process. Um, and she also led the current account switch service, which people in the UK will have heard of that, which is basically... I mean, she'll, she'll talk more in detail about how it works and where it came from, but it basically helps customers switch accounts without, you know, too many, too much paperwork or just really streamlining that process. So if a customer finds a bank that better suits their needs, you can switch a lot easier than in the past. So she talks about the origin of that and, and the work she did um, in leading that, that switching service. Um, and then something else we discussed was one of my favorite questions around the role of cash and the likelihood of a cashless future, because this always leads to some great conversation about inclusion and digital technology and digital inclusion and also just a bit of context on the payment space and banking channels and particularly in the UK context how digital is growing and you know the role that cash plays for particular people in the community so a lot of different things that we spoke about but it was a really great chat with someone who just has so much experience in this payments and uh, diversity and inclusion sector. That cash point is just so topical at the moment as well. And we could talk for hours, I think, about all the RFI data that we have around changing payment methods and the decline of cash and how the pandemic has really sped up that um, that decline in cash. And we're now starting to see, you know, a few years ago, it was there'd be merchants who are only cash accepting, and now we're starting to see it go the other way and merchants who, who, who won't accept cash at all. And it does raise interesting questions around financial inclusion and, and whether you're forcing customers to use a payment method maybe they're less comfortable with. Um, I was also reflecting as you're talking on, um, I did a presentation the other week talking about check usage, which you know, we haven't really covered in, in a lot of detail in, in the, at least in the Australian marketing in quite a while, but it's one of those things that comes up every now and then around, you know, do consumers still need checks? What purpose do they, do they solve for? Um, is there a way to migrate customers away from checks? I think similar to where we'll probably end up with cash, there is a segment of the of society who just are happy using what they, they've always used and you don't really want to force them to use something else. So you kind of do have to continue to support these traditional payment methods um, for an increasingly small proportion of the market. I love the check topic as well, because I remember we were discussing that internally where we kind of asked our team, or I think I just yeah, spoke to a few people in the business around, do you still use checks? Because in my head, I was, I was sure no one's using them and they were, you know, checks just weren't, weren't a thing anymore. And then everyone was giving me specific examples of how they've had to pay their rent with a check. They had to, you know, had they had a check from when they had money left over on an account. And there was all these examples that I honestly hadn't thought of. And I think cash has a similar experience where customers, you know, some people just think, well, I don't use cash. I haven't used cash in five years. So who else is using it? And it's really interesting to step back and actually think here are the key roles that, you know, cash plays. And, you know, five, 10 years ago, we were having similar conversations with checks where that was just a standard, 
you know, method of, of paying, you know, travelers checks, getting paid your salary or getting your, your wage with a check. And it's just interesting, you know, thinking about how these, these payment methods change and then something like the pandemic that just throws a spanner in the works and really changes um, how, how people are paying and what they expect and the role of those different payment methods as well. Also, what happens if your if your technology fails? I'm one of those people who uses Apple Pay for everything, and I've been stuck in a couple of instances where someone's um, uh, polls machine's gone down. Um, and and what do you do then? Because you can't you know access cash all that easily with um, with your phone. Uh, so there, yeah, there are access um, concerns just around payment methods as well around cash. Um, sounds like a, a really interesting conversation. Uh, looking forward to hearing it. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the RFI Group Digital Banker podcast. And with me today is Anne Pizzilon, who is a leader in the payment space, having led strategy and product development at Bax, which was formerly Pay. which is now Pay.UK, um, challenging traditional payment models and championing financial inclusion and diversity. Um, Anne is also currently on the payment systems regulator panel representing consumer interests. And we'll, we'll go into it a little bit more about this throughout the discussion, but to start off with, Anne, could you introduce yourself to our listeners a little bit more in detail and talk us through some of your key career milestones? Certainly will, and just like to say thank you very much for inviting me to have this uh, discussion with you this morning. It's a lovely sunny day here, it's, uh, so let's have a nice bright and breezy discussion. So my name's Anne Pietzgenen is the, the, the name that most people get a bit jumped up about. Um, and I've realized actually with my second name, actually it's good to be different in some cases because it actually you know, it makes me stand out from the crowd. But if I think about my career as a, as a looking back and really I have to think about what I would say to my 15 year old self when I started my career was actually to be bold. Um, I uh, started my career doing a Saturday job in a, a high street bank and uh, it was the cooperative bank, and I didn't know where I was going to, what I was going to do. I still didn't know uh, many years later. But the, the bank really gave me a good standing in, in my um, ability to think about what I wanted to do in the future. So I did a vast number of jobs. I was a cashier. I was the back office person. I made the tea. I, um, but then I progressed, and I was able to do strategy. And also, I learned all about budgeting from a personal perspective, but also from a, a, um, a company perspective. I ended my career really um, as, as a highlight, uh, primarily do it working with charities. We did a lot of things to think about what we had as a bank, um, which is back office functions, which is around processing payments. And we took that information out to the charities and we developed what we called a locked box system and it's quite a good concept now because what it is, is actually it enables charities to provide a central address for people to make donations to. And we used to have a room of people that were opening up envelopes and finding out and what we did. And then we progressed that to the disasters emergency committee. So I, I actually find that or hold, hold that up as one of my main contributors to the charity sector. And it was something I loved doing because I, I worked with a range of charities from um, cancer charities also to dog charities and um, uh, old age, like age concern. And I, it gave me a big insight as to what the world, there were many different needs 
across uh, different products. So I went from there to backs payment schemes. And at the time, I was head of schemes. Didn't really know what the actual job was because head of schemes, what's that about? Um, I went for the job because actually someone recommended, it was my boss at the time, didn't want to get rid of me. He made a point of saying that. But he said, actually, I knew you need to develop and this is a good way for you to develop. Because my 15-year-old self, or my, myself at that time, I was very much, um, I'd only ever been for that one job. So this is my only, my, my proper first interview for an alternative career. Um, so I spent a, a lot of time at Bax, And during that time, we very, we changed the process. So what does it mean? It was working for the central infrastructure. So we had a really privileged position whereby actually what we did impacted the whole ecosystem. So from, from consumers out on the street to actually large corporates and also regulators and the government. So I'm able to actually have that ability to speak to all of those communities. But it gave us the, it really gave us the actual, um, we had to make sure that whatever we did within the centre, any changes that we did in the centre, were actually, uh, we understood what it meant to the whole ecosystem. I always uh, um, put it back to that game of whack-a-mole. So, you know, you make a change at this end of the system um, and actually what happens, something pops up here and you didn't realise the, the consequences of what you were doing. So what I learned from that and I take away from that is actually before you make change or product innovation or anything along those lines, you have to ensure that you've actually completed your research properly. You... I even took assumptions as to what changes were required and what people wanted. But actually, when you go out and talk to people, you're very, quite often surprised, actually, what they require or come back to you with. And that was very um, relevant when we did the current cap switch. So just finishing off on my career then. So I worked my way through on the back to payment schemes. It wasn't a large company. We started at nine. But when I left, it was about 60 odd. Um, but we had a big influence. I mean, we were, talk, we were processing trillions of uh, value of uh, uh, transactions um, and millions of transactions a day. Um, but my role transitioned into director of product and strategy. And I think the reason I did that is because it was all around actually ensure my, I'm absolutely para, passionate about ensuring that end users are catered for and looked after as any end users that could be even the corporates that are using a, a service. Um, but also um, it's around reuse. You know, if you've got a system, is there any way that you can use it in a different way? And also look at actually not just doing tomorrow what you've done today, it's by actually questioning and challenging how you do that. So I ended my career at BATS when it was amalgamated with um, Fast Payments and uh, Checking Credit Clearing as, as Pay.UK because I thought it was the right time to move on. Since then, I'm now doing some work for the Bank of England around the transition into the new standards around ISO 20022, which is really interesting. And obviously, I'm working as consumer advocate for the payment system regulator, and I do some other, some other projects as well. What a great rundown of your career. And I think there's, I mean, obviously so much that you've done, even from the very beginning, I think 
it's interesting thinking about the journey into financial services. It seems that a, a lot of us start without the intention of necessarily being so passionate about financial services and inclusion and payments, but it just naturally develops in that way. And I think your work with charities and then you know, payments um, and thinking about strategy as well, I think it's clear how much kind of work has gone into a lot of these decisions that have um, you know, decisions that have been made and projects that you've worked on. And I think the, the big topic to be talking about today is about your work on the current account switch service. So potentially for, for those listeners who don't know what this is, for people who are outside of the UK or aren't really across uh, what this means and how this benefits consumers, could you talk us through what that involves and how this really does help consumers with their uh, banking and with, you know, even com competition in the market? I'm really proud about my role within CAS, put it CAS, because uh, as with anything within payments, we always have to abbreviate everything. So, uh, no, so we went to current account switch service. So if we think about we're payments, why would we get involved with a, a, a product that actually was our, NG, our, our, um, our members were actually providing to their customers? And the reason being is because actually the current account switch service is really a messaging service. So we knew, so we go back, we knew that there was an issue. So that people were actually asking for accounts to be switched from one trans, one uh, institution to another. Um, but actually that there, it was getting lost in the system. It was taking weeks, not days, and people were getting frustrated and there was no proper process behind it. That became even more prevalent when you actually got them to secondary um, agency banks. So building societies because letters would get lost in the big scheme of things. And so the, the competition across even the market was actually being impacted because those smaller agencies never actually got a voice at the table as to try to make change. So that we knew there was an issue. First thing we did is we actually went out to see some of our members. And if I give you a visual, we went into one particular member's um, current account department and there are piles of paper like this, literally, people were sitting with papers around them. You think this is a fire risk. <laughs> but you think each piece of paper is someone's issue. You know, someone is saying, what's going on? You know, and this is my money. This is this is deep within me. And if this goes missing, what happens? Um, we also knew there was an even bigger issue. And I'll, I'll talk about the, the cash ISA transfer service, which you may not have even heard of. And this was within the UK, we have a product that you're able to um, save into. And then once the, most people look around just before the tax year in April to say that they want to transfer. And again, everyone wants to do it within a period of time. So um, the members were having to get multiple people into these rooms to try and get these switches actually completed within time. And they were getting frustrated because it was costing them a lot of money. It was actually, it was costing the, the customers a lot of money because they were losing on better interest rates. And then they were getting, the members themselves were getting fined. So the regulators were also getting um, involved in this. So we took the current, so the, the cash ISA service, we as BACs, and usually as a payment system, we actually bid to actually to build the service. And it's about a million transactions per annum, 90% of which, as I said, take, took place in one month. So we just looked at, actually, we went out and said to the customers, what is it that you want? You know, what, what do you want to, to do? What to happen? 
And they said, actually, all we want to do is make sure that our money gets transferred. We know what's happening. And we know that if there's something goes wrong, who to go to. So it's very simple. So we built the service and that was then all the lessons learned that we've had from that. We then looked from the current account perspective. Um, we also, so the, but we also did a shed load of more research um, because my, our assumptions at the time were actually people want to transfer their direct debits and their standing orders to their new account. And it's actually time critical. They wanted to do it from A to B. They, they want to do it in a particular way. But when all we talked to people, the same principles came out. What they wanted from a central infrastructure, this is the customers, was actually something that they could trust. And they could actually, they knew what was happening and they, they knew who to speak to again if something went wrong. They didn't want to talk to the old bank. In some cases, they'd actually fallen out with their old bank, um, but they just wanted one point of contact. So it was the, the terms that were coming out were seamless, stress-free, and actually understanding what was happening. So we built the service based on that. And people say, well, why does it take seven days? Actually, there is a requirement because that enables you to capture all of those direct debits in flights, or your bill payments in flight enable you to actually have a set timing at uh, which the, trans the transfers were made. So the current account switch service, from a payments perspective, actually it wasn't around the it was around the payment mandates, the pay the count transactions, and understanding who would be responsible for actually transitioning those accounts from A to B. So my my role within that was as advocate to begin with to actually understand and put this product in to to argue that actually a payment scheme should get involved in um, a, a current account system um, and the reason being is because you had that secure network um, but my main role was around governance because my my principle was actually the, the payment schemes prior to that were very much driven by the larger members and the smaller members didn't actually have the ability to have a voice at the table. So the governance that we did, and I think, so none of the first thing was we actually understood what product was that we wanted, i.e. the end users wanted, rather than us building something that we thought they wanted. We then actually put in the governance to say that when it was in live, that even smaller institutions would have a very, very smooth route into actually coming on board because it was, it was good for the larger institutions as well because they wanted to ensure they got rid of the paper. And the more we could encourage those smaller institutions to come on board, the better. But they also had a, a role going forward in as much as we, we set up a governance committee that said, this is what we want to do. Um, and we also said that once a year, we'd have a strategy um, forum in which we would then ensure that what we had actually was, was still fit for purpose. So you don't just, just because it's successful doesn't mean to say that you can't then actually make changes. Then the, the other thing I, I was really, really keen on is we worked very closely with government to find out, because this is around what does success look like? 
So when we're looking at our criteria, it's easy to say success for a central service should be the number of transactions that go through it. Wrong. <laughs> because, and someone explained this to me in another picture for you in your mind, is that you can build the best plane in the world to go from here to Australia so we can see each other in, in person. However, if I don't want to go to Australia, I might, it might be the best plane. I'm not going to get on there. So as a central infrastructure, you know, I could build the best product in the world, but it wasn't down to me to encourage people to actually get on the plane. So we, we argued and, and well, we, we went to Treasury and said, look, you know, so let's go back to the principles of why we were building this. The principles are is that people want to trust this service and they want to actually ensure that if something goes wrong, that they know who to go to. So therefore, we agreed a success criteria of 75% awareness. So our main criteria was actually to ensure that people knew the service was there and that they would be protected rather than actually promoting the service itself. So you may see our Mr. Switch guy and some of our adverts, if you've been in the UK, but that was, I think, a changing government thinking. And I think if you then bring that as a lesson learned to today with open banking, you know, you would then start to think, actually, to ensure that open banking is actually a success, what we should be doing is actually understanding what it's trying to achieve. And I know there are multiple products, but this is actually building consumer confidence because we spent so many years telling them not to give away any of their data um, so that we can actually start to open those doors. Um, so the current account switch service, very much working with the regulator, and it was part of the, the principles that actually started open banking, um, the, the road to open banking. Um, so hopefully that's uh, good some learnings you get from that. Absolutely. And I think the, the um, analogy of the plane or just the concept that even if the solution is amazing, if people don't use it, then it just sits there, you know, the plane is, there's no passengers and for what, you know, it's, so I like the idea of kind of re reimagining or redefining what that success criteria is and actually having it being just awareness that there's a better way of actually switching or even that there's, there's solutions in place so that you don't send off your paper form and have it literally sit there. I mean, I'm picturing this desk with a pile of paper, which I think is just such a clear image of what's taking so long when, you know, when switching used to be really, painful and time consuming. And just that, that image of the paperwork, I think really speaks to how these solutions can be so, so helpful. And we went out uh, following that. I mean, so um, following that, we went to the energy sector and told them what we did and how we did it. So they took lessons learned and also waterboard, et cetera. So I think if you, you're looking at the payments world is around collaboration, it's around entities working together and ensuring that, because um, there's a winner and a loser in all of this. So working together, you can actually then come out with a better product at the end of it. I think it also speaks to the point that you made a little bit earlier about the fact that in an ecosystem, if you make one solution, you have to think about who else it could be impacting or even unintended consequences, or you, know, you make a solution for this group, but who's excluded. And it seems that you know a lot of these decisions, a lot of, I'm sure there was some pretty intense conversations that went on behind the scenes to make sure that you know these solutions are 
appropriate and accessible and, um, you know, really meet the needs of what was clearly quite a, a clear need in the market as well. Absolutely. Are there any stats that you have on how many people have successfully switched using the service? Are there those kinds of stats around, you know, people switching? I should do it because that's the other thing that we did, actually. Um, I think it's I, actually I won't give you a number because I haven't looked recently. Mm -hmm. And I then urge people to go to the, the BACS website of current account switch service because one of the other things that we did is um, working with the regulators is the other thing that we could do is actually track how many people were satisfied with their switch, because whilst we can't make them get on the plane, we can actually ask them once they've been on the plane, actually how, how the journey was. Um, so, and the other thing we asked the, the members to do is actually to publish the data of how many accounts that they've won and lost on a regular basis. So people can go to the, the BACS website now and actually get that data. And it's uh, published the quarter in arrears. Um, and they will show you the winners and losers. And they show also the, how many people have been satisfied with the service. And I can absolutely, I'm so proud to say, actually, it's always in the high 90s that people were absolutely um, satisfied. And that comes out to the principle of having one point of contact if something yeah. goes wrong. Now, I know, I don't know if it, I get on the phone and try and find out you know, if something, my Amazon parcel hasn't arrived or something. And the frustrations I experience are extremely, oh, well, I, I hit the roof sometimes as I'm getting older as well. But it was very, we actually worked with the members and said it has to be really clear because it's the winning bank who wants to engage with that customer that actually has that full responsibility. And you mentioned trust as well being important. You know, consumers want the information. The fact that they can go on the website and actually see this is the proportion, you know, this is the number who's successfully switching. This is who banks are losing these customers, they're gaining these customers. It's been quite a, a good way to encourage customer trust as well because it's not a secret. It's not, you know, oh, we're losing these customers. What are we going to do to get them back? It's here's the numbers and it's quite accessible, which I think especially in recent years, you know, trust is becoming more and more important. The research that we have shows that. I know other research shows that as well. And especially with banking, you know, it's, it's our money and we want to know that what we're doing is the right thing. And we also want the ability to access the information uh, to make these decisions as well. So I think it's such a, a great initiative and really encourages that kind of culture of transparency as well. And especially in the UK, I'm not sure how it is in Australia, but we have the free of in credit process so most people do not pay for their banking and therefore it becomes um, less valued in some people's eyes because it's something that's it's there it's free everyone you know it's it's I deserve it so but we're transitioning very slowly to more packaged accounts now so you will some people will pay for their banking so I think um, it's again giving people choice as to whether or not they want to do that but come back to the original principles, because we had the free of in credit banking, most people actually it takes, and we saw this again with our research, it took them a lot of lot to actually even think about trans transferring because A, they couldn't be bothered because they're not getting again like for like, why would they? You know, as long as they, you know, as long as something happens, if I need it or whatever. Primarily it was driven by bad customer service. 
So good customer service rates would, would see that people would, may want to go to them. But it took a lot. So I would give you two examples where banks had real issues with their back office systems. They actually um, did not lose as many accounts as we thought they would. So again, it comes back to in the UK, it's very sedentary market. I People do not want to, to transfer. However, because we put the account service system in, if they do want to transfer, and the rates and the, the trust that we're building in it actually has seen numbers start to, never going to go high, but they're actually starting to, to increase. Yeah, isn't that interesting? It's just showing that, you know, if customers have a bit more information and they have the, the options of choice as well, sometimes it's just just having the options and knowing what else is out there. So even increasing that awareness would be so critical to some of this. Um, and I guess it'd be interesting as well to speak about, you know, we've spoken about payments technology and payments solutions and, you know, helping consumers be aware of how they can uh, engage with their banking and, um, you know, switch if they are unsatisfied with their current bank. Um, thinking about more broadly the payments landscape, if we were to talk about cash, can you imagine a future where there isn't cash or cash isn't as prevalent as it is now? And, you know, what can you tell me about how important you feel cash currently is in at least the UK or even more broadly, just uh, globally? I, you know, it's a really challenging question. You know, um, I think we need to absolutely work collectively together to address this. And the reason, and it's really important because this isn't just a UK issue, it's actually um, worldwide that this is actually becoming more of a, a question. And you've seen other countries that don't have such legacy system, payment legacy systems as the UK or complex legacy system actually do other products. But if I come fundamentally back to the, the process, the people that tend to use cash tend to be those that are left financially vulnerable. And I, that's a, a big statement. And I, I think at the cost of processing cash and the societal impacts of cash, you know, that it's been proven that if you've got cash, you'd be more likely to be um, uh, mugged or whatever. Then, you know, there's a risk of actually having cash then that has to actually be, we have to work together to find a solution that we do not leave a segment of society behind. I mean, I've, I actually start to look at other elements to this. Um, so I start to think about actually how many people have got accounts because that actually comes back to, in, and in the UK, what we've got is we've got 15.2 million individuals who are either non-users or have limited users of the internet. And you've then got um, a number of, there's 1.2 million people that actually do not have bank accounts. Now that could, that number go fluctuates, you can look at different research, but if you think about a million people have actually not got bank accounts. And then you think about the reasons why that's happening. And the, the three primary reasons is that they are, and I said there, 15.2 um, million are kind of digitally excluded. Um, they also have the issue about rural and remote populations. And then obviously there are older population who do not want to change. You know, why should they change? They've always done it this way. It works for them. Um, I so you need to understand and address some of those issues before you can actually start to think about actually, should we be withdrawing cash or should we be doing something different? So, I mean, I there is other research that says in the UK, we still have 2 million people, 1 million, 1 million without a bank account. 
2 billion people are still reliant on cash. Um, I mean, but the numbers are reducing significantly, particularly with COVID, we've seen a, a sharp increase of digital um, cards taken on board. So in my world, what I'm saying is, unless you start to, to address the fundamental issues of ensuring that those people have sufficient education and ability to have the, the, the information to make the right decisions for themselves, then I think that we will be heading into problems for a segment of society. So if you think about that from the UK perspective, I'm really pleased. Um, actually, it's something we did in the Cooperative Bank many, many years ago. We used to have what we called a year handy bank system. So you actually could, within the co-op stores, go into a, a till and actually do your banking at the till whilst you're doing your shopping. So in the UK, what we've been doing recently is, uh, and I've been working with them, is a company called One Banks. Um, and then primarily started in um, uh, Scotland. When I say working with them, I just know the people that are David Hensley and David Falkman actually are working closely with One Bank's team. And the principle is, is that they are actually in places that people will be going to do, like shopping centres, etc. And they will then be able to answer questions, not just for one bank, but also multiple banks. And they're using open banking principles in order for them to get the data. So this is a good use of new, new principles so that people can actually get some assistance on a face-to-face -face basis and actually start to still get access to cash if they want it in a cost-effective way. Because let's face it, a lot of the legacy banks Actually, you know, why should they be kept made to keep banking um, services open if it's costing them money on a, on a weekly basis? So, and it's key that the government are working with this. So, yesterday it was actually announced. Um, there's a, a access to cash action group, and they announced yesterday that they're actually going to extend the use of shared bank hubs by one banks which I talked about, but also they're putting them into post offices. So again, that helps with the post offices to keep their relevance in the, the new world. Um, but the second thing they're doing is they're, they're actually doing a rapid rollout of cash back within, without purchase. And this is now going to expand, be expanded to thousands of smaller shops. I think this is kind of like a little bit of a sticky plaster of the issue, but because I do think we still need to work with those communities to understand how we can address the digital excluded issues, you know, that's about education, but also those remote areas to ensure that they have access to an internet that actually works, which I wouldn't be able to function on a day-to-day -day basis if I didn't have the ability to do that. Yeah, digital inclusion, I guess thinking about access as well, it's something that, you know, we were progressing on and then with COVID, everything shifted a little bit with, you know, some people being forced to use digital more than they would before, but then also some people really being more excluded than they should be just based on the fact that branches were closing or it was harder to use cash, just kind of an unintended, um, you know, a consequence that occurred just based on inclusion having this whole new disruption. Okay. Um, so one of the things I've been doing whilst uh, you know for the last eighteen months is actually working with the Emerging Payments Association, and the Emerging Payments Association actually has a number of members that are mainstream banks, but also a lot of fintechs. 
So these are actually, um, so these are the EMIs, these are, are products that are actually available to people that actually can be tailored to different segments of society. So for example, I've worked with a lovely company that actually their product is aimed at migrants, you know, so they still have um, additional people that come in or people that are on um, cash basis. Uh, so for, um, for example, for crops, if they come along and they, they pick the crops, then they work for a particular company for a particular time. And so they actually offer an account that those people can actually get access to because it's underpinned by the company in which they're working for. And they can have actually then access to a digital account and the company then has the ability to pay them in a, a regulated way. And they can actually then access through the, the banking system. Um, so it works really, really well. That just gives you one example. There's other examples of um, uh, products that are aimed at specific um, people that need additional help in potentially short-term lending products. You know, it's costly, but it's better than actually some of the other products that may be accessible by these people. So, I, But what people don't realise is there are a range of products out there. They don't have to go to the, the existing or the mainstream banks. They can actually, if they've got particular needs, like they may have been um, rejected from an account elsewhere, if they've got a need, then there are products that they can actually, they can actually have access to, some of which build them points so that they can then go into um, more access to different services within those products. But not, none of this is really um, known out there, and nor is the differential between an FCA, a FS, FCA product and a, um, a product that's actually underpinned by the financial services. There are a range of uh, products out there that uh, people can access. And I think that's what we should be doing is we should be saying to people, you don't need to do, you don't need to go down a particular route. There are actually different products that could be better for your needs. I think that also speaks to the role of education. I think you mentioned that before as well when thinking about digital inclusion and even you know getting people aware of CAS and different um, initiatives and products that are out there. And I know that you've done some work with the money charity as well. Um, what I mean, could you tell us a little bit about the work that the money charity does and also how kind of what you're what you're enjoying about your work with with that charity and how this is something that can actually help customers manage money and how education and guidance can really help to address some of these inclusion initiatives or objectives yeah i, I mean so i'm very an advocate for financial inclusion i'm also an advocate for um diversity uh, etc so i am always trying to find a, a route to actually ensure that people have, are able to make an informed choice, whatever that informed choice needs to be about. So the Money Charity is very much, it's a small charity based in the UK. It uh, provides education and support. So it provides it in two ways. So firstly, it works with the schools. Um, and I've got a 21-year-old son, and my son is so useless at budgeting, I can't, even though I've, I've rammed it into him and said, this is what you should be thinking about, he just gets his like university money and think, woohoo, I've got loads of money in my account. <laughs> you know, let's go and spend it. Ooh, I need to pay some rent. <laughs> so just, I mean, honestly, so in case of students, I do not believe that they get sufficient education within school to actually help them through that 
day-to-day um, -day life to explain to them the difference between a credit card and a debit card or the API or, you know, you, you have to pay things back, making sure that how you budget on a day-to-day -day basis. So the Money Charity actually goes into the schools and I've been on a couple of their workshops and it's absolutely aimed at the, the, the target audience because it's very much an interactive um, principle in which they, they actually get the students to think about what they are doing rather than actually, if they give them an example of building, of buying a laptop, you know, different methods of actually buying that and the way that you'd have to repay it. And you can see light bulbs going on in the, the students' minds because they're just, they, they've been explained to and educated in a way, worked with, to give them a, a platform on which they can then start to go away and think about it. So that's the first thing they do, is they capture um, students say, before they leave school to ensure that they've got a, a, um, the ability to budget themselves. Secondly, though, they work in the community. So they've, um, so particularly at this stage uh, where we are, it's really relevant. So they go into um, companies and they will work either with their staff or with other uh, partners, and they will provide um, tailored workshops aimed at what particular aspects wants to be discussed, like it could be pensions or anything like that. But more prevalently, what it is is around actually ensuring that uh, people understand there are different options to them. Um, so it's around financial well-being and they talk to them on a daily basis and ask them you know what they could do and, and give them advice as to where they can go if they are in issues having problems at the time and especially important as we're coming out of the covid regime it's a good approach to be thinking about kind of the, the new generation of people who will be you know getting into debt utilizing credit and making sure that they're aware of kind of how how to manage this debt and also where they can avoid it because I think sometimes a lot of the stories you hear of you know people who are in their 20s and get caught it with debt it's not intentional it's just you know I, I utilized debt because I had you know I, I built up some debt because I had a credit card I didn't pay with it for a specific reason it was just there and it, I think it's kind of helping to break that down and help people understand the longer term implications can be quite helpful even just contextualizing it and saying you know, you want to buy a laptop, here are your five options, which one do you think is going to be the best one in both the short term and the long term? And, and the implications, uh, you've said it there, Anna, you know, this is just about really educating, asking them to think before they sign something, and really explaining to them the ramifications of what they are doing. And I think it, it's, it sounds simple, but it's it's really important that, that they're able to do that before they spiral into a world that's maybe uncontrollable. So that's what the money charity do is really very much aimed at education, providing people and with the tools in which to make their own choices um, and the platform, and also providing them with the information should they need help, where to go to because there are a plethora of uh, organizations available around, but and you, sometimes it's good to just get that little bit of um, clarity as to where to go forward. Absolutely. 
Um, and I guess to finish up, you mentioned that you're a diversity advocate and, you know, you've, you've worn many hats in your career. You've done charity, financial services, payments, regulation. You know, there's been a lot, of, um, a lot of work that you've done in different sectors. Um, I'd love to know if there's any, any maybe advice that you have, for, especially for women who are starting out their careers. Um, and as someone who has, you know, worked in, in you know, and learned a lot across different, um, different businesses, is there any advice that you have for women starting their careers? I mean, I I've wished I'd have had my own advice when I, I started <laughs> off. I keep talking about my 15-year-old self, but when I started out on work, I mean, it's confidence. And also, it, I mean, for me, it, it would be actually don't, don't accept the norm in, in a way because I, if I look back, the only reason I progressed my career is because other people did it for me because I didn't have the confidence in order to do so. So I, I explained, I jumped from um, the co-op to facts, really because my boss at the time was saying, Anne, you need to get out there. Um, and I know that a lot, a lot of younger people now have more confidence, but it's actually really recognizing how you can add value to the organization that you want to, and to recognize the value in yourself. So if, I, if there's anything, it's about confidence. Can I also, um, you know, so diversity is absolutely my thing. And I love, I have a, a lovely story around this. Because so, um, when I left Bax, I really wanted, because it had been such a big pet time of my life, I really wanted to actually come out of that and, and make a break in a way. So as you do, I went to Uganda to work with some South Sudanese um, business people because they're refugees within Uganda. I hadn't realized that when you talk about a refugee camp in Uganda, you're talking about 150 to 200,000 people. So it's not a small event. It's more like a, you know, like the size of Wales or whatever. Um, so I went to go Uganda and we worked with some lovely people and lovely women as well as men, which really surprised me. So these are people that are, have come from their countries, many of which had nothing. So uh, there was a lovely lady uh, called Florence who we met who came that just had some Fred, New Deal and Fred. And she sat at the roadside and she offered to pe uh, mend people's clothes. And then she progressed and she got, got her own sewing machine. And when the time we met her, she was employing about three people. So you're talking about, so she was feeding between 20 to 30 people. So if you think about that, Jessica. Now, we had a great debate and where I'm going with this is about how, how we do employ people, you know, because most in those communities, you tend to go by word of mouth, um, family, friends may not be the best person, but they go to family. Friends. Anyway, big arguments ensued because we suddenly realized we were getting an unconscious bias. And, you know, so it's very much so the men were saying, oh, yes, we want someone with a a, a financial um, education certificate and the women go we've never had the opportunity to get that so you would never ever employ us and so I came away from that thinking to myself actually we have unconscious bias on a day-to-day -day basis in the UK so if I was thinking about myself again I would recognize that people that are talking to me may want to speak to the me in their own language and see me you know so replace it but I would always want to be, and I'd always um, advocate being yourself. And if you recognize conscious bias, just address it in a way 
that they're not doing it consciously. It's it's something that you just need to like, okay, I recognize that you may want to have a male of 40 or you know, whatever, but I can do as good a job as them. I've got the skills and I can do that. Such a good point. And I think it also it's a constant adjustment in our minds where you have a thought and you think, where did that thought come from? What, you know, that's my first thought, but how can I correct that? And it's just this constant growth where you're, you know, just challenging the way that you think about things and interactions that you have and how you're speaking about, you know, speaking to people and thinking about different circumstances, which I think comes down to a lot of the, the dialogue and conversation around inclusion as well, where it's not just thinking about the inclusion in the world that I'm in, but what about for people who had a different upbringing or who had different, have a different culture or, you know, they were taught different things, different values. Um, it's just, it's quite a complex topic, but I think it's the idea of just constantly keeping that in the back of your mind and recognizing that it's not, it's not conscious. You're not doing it on purpose, but it's just there. And it's something you just have to really be conscious of, conscious of your unconscious bias, but just keeping it yeah. always in your mind. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and let me give you another story. So I, I came back um, and I realized that throughout my career, I'd been doing it as well. So if I look back as who I was employing, and I really was mortified. However, as a, you know, as you grow older, you, 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 as long as you recognize that people aren't doing this um, deliberately in most cases, um, but you kind of just make sure that you uh, are able to put your case in over as best as you can definitely because you I think I've read some some stats around people are more drawn to applicants for a role who remind them of themselves because it's you just it feels familiar you kind of know what you're dealing with and it's even especially in recruitment it's a big one because you're just going to be thinking hang on what am I actually looking for rather than who am I personally drawn to or who do I feel is relatable because I'm imposing what I like in a person so it's not an easy area (laughs) And then the other thing I would do, uh, the only other piece of advice I'll leave you with, and it's something that I wish I had done earlier, is always think, I mean, throughout my career, I've always been so busy doing what I've done at at that time. Yeah, really, okay, I was best work. I was doing many hours. You've got to think about tomorrow as well. And more importantly, as you're getting towards the the middle of your career or the end of your career, just think about actually, what do I want to do? So in my case, I very much, I didn't probably um, engage or create a network as much as I should have done because I was too busy actually looking at my own, uh, what I was doing on a day to day. I didn't go outside of the community in which I was working. I think it's always important to keep your, your ideas fresh and also thinking about what you want to do tomorrow, I, a non-exec role or a trust, trustee role. To actually, to actually look at your network and expand your network. And it's not about the old school network, you know, jobs for the boys. But this is actually, realistically, if you nurture your network, then actually your network will nurture you. It will give you opportunities for the future. And I think that's also what I enjoy so much about these conversations because there's so much to learn from so many other people. And I think that you can get kind of caught up in your own headspace, but to actually just sit down and learn from people who have gone through all these challenges and learned all these lessons through hard work, it's, it's really inspiring. And I think there's been a lot that we've discussed today that 
I've been taking some notes and it's just, it's really interesting to, to hear about your career and all the lessons and also some of the, the decisions you've been part of. You know, there's some, some pretty big milestones that are quite, you know, they're quite impactful in the lives of UK consumers. So I think there's a lot of amazing achievements there. Um, so I think to wrap up, it'd be good to know for any of our listeners who would like to find out a bit more about your work or connect with you, where's the best place for them to look? The only place I'm on is actually on LinkedIn. That's me to my network too well. But yeah, you can get me on LinkedIn. Perfect. Well, thanks so much, Anne, for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking to you and I'm sure our listeners are going to really enjoy this episode. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Global Digital Banker Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify and Podbean.